Welcome to the public morality. Hate speech, loosely defined, is abusive or threatening speech or writing that expresses prejudice against a particular group, especially on the basis of race, religion, or sexual orientation. But applying that definition in the public square can be difficult, especially when confronted with the First Amendment's free speech protections. Does the First Amendment protect hate speech? What other challenges should we attempt to place restrictions on speech we deem objectionable? Joining me to discuss hate speech and the First Amendment is Kevin Goldberg. Goldberg is a First Amendment specialist at the Freedom Forum located in Washington, D.C. Kevin Goldberg, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. I want to begin this conversation by having you, to the best of your ability, uh, offer a definition of hate speech. Hmm. Yeah, well, this is this is difficult in part because we do not define hate speech as a matter of law in the United States. And we'll, I'm sure, talk about why that is. Uh, so you sort of have to cobble that together through maybe our general understandings of what hate speech might be and other countries' laws that deal with, with this type of speech, because it is something that is regulated and prohibited in, in many other countries, including many uh, Western European democracies. But if I had to define it, I would probably say that you're looking at something that has content, um, that, that is trying to prohibit content around uh, uh, a certain race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, those protected classes we already see in the Constitution. Um, you're looking at something that has an intent to harm people uh, uh, that are a member, that, that, that speech is targeted to that group with an intent to inflict some kind of harm on those people. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I'm wondering, I'm thinking back to the famous opinion by Justice Potter Stewart and Jacobellos versus Ohio about assembly when he said, I know it when I see it. Yeah. Uh, does hate speech bear some similarity to that? Actually, in, in discussing this internally with a group of experts we have at the Freedom Forum um, a couple of years ago, in fact, um, that's exactly what I, I noted to them. Because we don't have a strict definition in the United States, we do tend to, when talking about hate speech, take that we know it when we see it approach. And that is, in fact, the danger of trying to regulate or punish what we might consider hate speech, of drafting laws that would allow for punishment of those who engage in, and we'll put air quotes around it, hate speech. Because if you take that, we'll know it when we see an approach to regulating hate speech, then individual speakers won't know when they might be punished for engaging in what is later determined to be hate speech. Uh, if free speech in general uh, is indeed, as uh, Frederick Douglass defined, he called it the moral renovator. Doesn't that sort of, in a way, require that hate speech, however defined, becomes necessary as an immoral barometer for our understanding of what free speech should be? So in other words, we sort of need, don't we sort of need hate speech to understand what free speech is? Uh, yes, and actually that that is one of the basic concepts underlying the First Amendment, that in allowing everybody to speak, 
we not only agree on what we we believe to be true, good, right, our 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 values as society. So that that's one part of it that, that you've described. The other part is perhaps equally important. We remind ourselves of what we reject as a society. So by allowing people to, to engage in hate speech, we are ultimately making strong value judgments to society as to what we both believe in and clearly do not agree with, do not believe in. And, and, and just to continue on that, I mean, so what I hear you saying is sort of furthering the, the thinking of uh, Justice Louis Brandeis when he said, you know, that the remedy to this problem is more speech rather than to enforce silence. Absolutely. And, and that's because another, another reason for allowing hate speech, another fundamental reason or philosophical reason is that we would rather actually have hate speech than hate action. And sometimes speech can act as a, a valve on the pressure cooker of society when things build up. And if you give people the right to speak their minds, they may not act on their impulses. Um, you, you mentioned that 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 notion of, of subjectivity, and, and, and um, you know that that I'm thinking one off the top of my head. I'm, I'm thinking about the my first First Amendment lesson um, of all. Ironically, came from Larry Flint, the publisher of, of the Pornographic Hustler magazine, and I remember watching. I was I was young. And I remember watching him on television, and. Um, he said that the commitment to the First Amendment is not those things you agree with, but the true commitment to the Constitution is, can you protect those things that you personally do not agree with? And, and what are your thoughts about that? Um, no, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. And I agree with Larry Flint in that regard, certainly. We, we, it's very easy to speak up and protect ourselves. It's a lot harder to protect the people we disagree with. It's a lot harder to protect the speech we find abhorrent. But we always have to remember that 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 today's majority will be tomorrow's minority. Um, and, and we may find ourselves in that minority. We may find ourselves on the other side of the discussion. We may find ourselves on the other side of the law. And it's at that moment that we really want the law to step up and protect us as much as it did the other side when they were in power. And one example of this are laws that might prohibit hate speech, where if you allow that those, those neutrally written laws to be enacted and enforced, my guess is they would often be enforced against the very people we believe we're trying to protect. So it's Here's an example. The Supreme Court has, has very clearly said you cannot have a you cannot have laws written that discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. You could not have a law that says it is illegal to speak ill of black people but not white people. Okay, that is that is clearly unconstitutional. But if you had a law that said it is illegal to speak ill of a person of another race, and you wrote that law hoping to protect black people, it may actually in the end be used to suppress black people from speaking out in ways that say those in power might say, you know, well, what you've actually done is incited hatred, hatred against white people. And so that's the, that is really the danger of saying, we need laws to protect, to protect one, one portion of society. What we need are laws that allow us 
to come together as a society to protect all members of society. And that's what the First Amendment does. But, but at the same time, uh, we see a number of states involved in book bannings, involved in my words, hyperbole to, to end speech, 1619 Project, Critical Race Theory, whatever, in certain books, I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. How, how do you, is, isn't that encroaching on the First Amendment? Absolutely. And that's exactly what I was talking about uh, just a moment ago. It's, it's both an encroachment on the law and an encroachment on the, the I think, philosophical uh, you know, reason for the First Amendment. It's an encroachment on the law because, as you said, most of these are not designed to prohibit conversation They're, or, or even conversation about a topic such as race in general, they are designed to prohibit one side of those conversations. And they are the worst of the worst of First Amendment violations. The, the First Amendment does not allow government to step in and pick sides in the political debate. And that's what's, what most of these laws you've referred to and most of these actions the ban books do. They take one, one type of book, they take one side of the educational conversation and prohibit that. But all, under you know underlying all that specifically in the areas of book burning and education are, they, they are, they're really bad examples to set for children. They're bad practice if we really want to become stronger as a society anytime we restrict speech. We, we damage ourselves as a society. We, you know, another reason we have the First Amendment beyond this search for the truth, this idea of the, the, the marketplace of ideas that exists to let us all speak and, and have conversations and hash out what we believe in, is that the First Amendment protects our fundamental right to liberty and freedom, and to make choices for ourselves, and also to grow and evolve from those choices as individuals. And I think we're, we do real damage in, in passing these laws, these anti-CRT laws, or, or banning books that might allow children to do just that, to grow and evolve. Well, I mean, it, it sort of emboldens my previous point or our previous point, though, since we both agree with Larry Flint, that's got to be a record. Two people <laughs> are agreeing with Larry Flint, but it emboldens Larry Flint's point, right? That some of the support for this is because I don't like critical race theory, so I support the banning of this, yeah. as opposed to I need to be wary anytime government is trying to ban something because that could be a slippery slope that comes back to me. Exactly. As, as I said, you, you know, the, the same laws that we think would be used to protect a certain group of people might actually be used against those group of that group of people. And we don't we certainly don't want that. And, you know, with regard to Larry Flint, I'll also say there is this this, you know, idea that we want we we want some of this outlandish speech. It's frankly, I mean, Larry Flint was an interesting guy. I think we do also agree on that. And our society is, tends to be more interesting. We tend to, you know, we tend to have better conversations, the broader those conversations get. And, 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 and intellectually, that's a good thing. Now, when I, anytime the conversation comes up for me around hate speech in the First Amendment, um, I hear a topic marred in absolutes. One side will say, well, hate speech is not free speech. Uh, for example, uh, not allowing um, 
conservative uh, pundit and culture to speak at Berkeley. So the justification of that is, you know, hate speech is not free speech, which sort of gets into your point of subjectivity. Conversely, it's also suggested that hate speech is constitutionally protected. You sort of touched on this earlier, but what does the First Amendment actually offer? And what are those protections? Well, uh, yeah, hate, hate speech is constitutionally protected. Um, I think we, we should be very clear about that. And, and I hope that the listeners to this program, if they take nothing else away, take that away. Because we at the Freedom Forum actually did a survey of Americans in 2020 that found that only 57 percent, less than two thirds, know that to be a, a fact that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. And that's because when you look at any attempt, whether by law, regulation, enforcement in the moment uh, of speech, any attempt to regulate speech, which infringes speech based on the message of that speech, that law, regulation, enforcement, punishment, whatever we're going to, whatever action it is, is only valid under the First Amendment if there is a compelling government interest for regulating the speech and the method used is as narrowly tailored as possible. Now, I think we're all going to agree that that preventing hatred is a compelling interest uh, or, or, or rises toward the level of compelling interest. The, the, the Supreme Court is, has kind of wavered on that a little bit for the most part, I think, you know, and, and we actually have a case in a way today at the Supreme Court, um, 303 Creative versus Alanis, where this is part of the issue, whether whether it's a compelling government interest to, to um, you know, prevent discrimination. But ultimately, where a lot of the laws, regulations, and punishment efforts fall short is that they are, again, they, they end up being applied in a viewpoint dis discriminatory manner. They pick one side of the conversation and not the other. They prohibit one viewpoint, but not the other. And that is distinctly not narrowly tailored to prevent you know, to preventing discrimination, to preventing harm. And that's where it falls short because the First Amendment, if nothing else, requires precision in the way we, we regulate speech. Now, most people, that I'm sure there are some examples in, in the public discourse, most people accept the, 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 the N-word is not acceptable speech. Generally speaking, to use a legal term, reasonable persons would accept that. But if you ban that, um, what about young African-Americans who freely use it in hip hop? Uh, it, it, so it, it gets complicated. Even that, even that word has to have nuance, right? Absolutely. And this is what I keep coming back to, that, that we don't want, you know, we may think we're doing a good thing by banning hate speech, but in fact, we're probably, you know, we, we might actually be doing disservice to the people we're we, we are purporting to protect by restricting speech. And again, as you know, there's nuance. So who would actually be making these decisions uh, really is, you know, is something we have to remember, um, you know, and, 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 and who the speaker is and what they might understand in the moment is something else we have to remember. And those two people are going to have divergent viewpoints perhaps as to the intention of the speaker in the moment they uttered something that was, you know, punished as hate speech. And, and that nuance is the reason, coming back to what I also said a moment ago, the First Amendment above all else requires that punishment be narrowly tailored and narrowly applied. Because we don't want to find ourselves in these gray areas that so often exist, punishing people for things that, that they, you know, 
they were actually trying to have a constructive conversation about or actually should be allowed to say. What, uh, in your view, is the connection, if any, to what one may deem as hate speech and the larger American commitment to liberty? The other part of that commitment is equality, but just talking about just the liberty piece. So what's that connection between what somebody thinks is hate speech and that larger commitment to liberty? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is this is where it, it does get difficult and we do have to test ourselves. And if I'm understanding you right, it's it's kind of taking perhaps a little bit of the other side and asking me, um, you know, well, 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 how do we how do we ensure we we protect the rights of everybody if we're going to allow a lot of these people to be subjected to hate speech as a matter of law? Yeah. Am I interpreting your question correctly? Exactly. Exactly. Well. Can I give an example from my own experience? You certainly may. Um, perhaps not surprising, I, uh, based on my name, I'm Jewish and I live in Washington, DC. And I live on specifically on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, very close to the United States Capitol. And this is not a January 6th story. This is a September 2011 story. When the American Nazi party wanted to march in Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, to protest what they believed was the purported genocide of white farmers in South Africa. And they got a permit, they applied to the government for a permit to march down East Capitol Street through a park called Lincoln Park after Abraham Lincoln and down East Capitol Street to the United States Capitol. They received this permit, they granted this, they were granted this permit because they filled out all the right forms and that's all that matters. The fact that they were the American Nazi party and wanted to come basically spout hate was correctly immaterial. Because again, the government can't deny an otherwise valid permit for a protest because they don't like the message. So on this day in September, 2011, the American Nazi party had their march and three buses pulled up into Lincoln Park, the doors open, and I think no more than 14 Nazis stepped out of the bus with their bullhorns and trying to start their discussion, their, their protest. Only I, I was there that day. I can't tell you a single word that was said because 150 people were there in response, shouting them down. The police were there too. The police were there to keep us apart and in fact, protect the Nazis who had their, their uh, right, their permit to protest. But in that day, the system worked. And so I think that's what I keep coming back to from my own personal experience. That, that a conversation was allowed to happen. We saw the response. In that time, it was nonviolent, thankfully. But, but, but the, the overarching message was clear. We reject hate. Well, I mean, that right there seems like a great example of what Brandeis was talking about, that the, the remedy was not less speech, but actually more speech. <laughs> yeah, as I like to say about that, the First Amendment system worked. So, but, but it, just following up on that, it's sort of, you sort of touch on this paradoxical notion of the American experiment and that the speech that I may abhor undergirds the speech that I support. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, and I said, it's, it's uh, the reason I brought up my own example is it's not something I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, it, let's be very clear here. In advocating for strong First Amendment protection of hate speech, 
I am not saying I agree with hate speech. I like hate speech. I praise hate speech or I want to elevate hate speech. I'm just saying that there is a valid reason for the First Amendment to protect hate speech. I think we should allow it and continue to repudiate it. And that is that is really, um, you know, another message I want to get across that 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 simply arguing for protection of something doesn't mean we are celebrating it. And I think there are many reasons to protect hate speech beyond just the the concept that hate speech laws could be used to actually punish the people that that we're trying to protect beyond the idea that they serve allowing hate speech serves as again that that valve to release the pressure of society and, and and allow speech allow people to be heard rather than feeling as though they're not and needing to take action and also because frankly a lot of hate speech laws don't work as i as i mentioned earlier in our conversation there are many western democracies that have hate speech laws Germany and France, for instance, have them, and yet they have higher incidence of racial violence than the United States does. Mm-hmm. Well, you just touched on something that I, I want to stay with for just a second. I want, I want to underscore, because oftentimes in constitutional interpretation, when we see pundits come on you know, television and talk about a Supreme Court ruling, they talk about the outcome. And... and and constitutional interpretation, in my view, is really not about the outcome, but it's about the process of the journey. And what I hear you saying, the process that secures uh, one to have hate speech that you may not like, that you might actually abhor, um, is the critical part that cannot be uh, touched. I I think you've heard me correctly. Yes, I 100% agree that that we we have to be mindful of the the underlying conversation, the underlying um, issue of of allowing the speech to occur, of making sure that everybody is heard to constantly reinforce and constantly test our values. Now, I'm gonna go back, um, this is a case, this is a situation that I've actually been on the record about, so um, you don't have to, I'm not asking to opine on the actual situation, but there was a law professor at Wake Forest University um, who actually, he's a con law professor. They were studying Brandenburg v. Ohio in order to illustrate how the court protects speech. He read Clarence Brandenburg's actual words. Students protested and sort of forced him to resign. My question to you is that sort of reaction uh, that, that really wants you to say the word, someone else's words, does that potentially undermine the ethos of the First Amendment, especially among those who will soon, you know, be the voices or sort of the vanguard of the Constitution? So I, I, I want to be very clear about one aspect of this and get your, uh, get you to ask you to confirm what I believe to be true. But is Wake Forest a private university? It is, it is. Yes. So of course, in this instance, we do not have the requisite government action to, exactly. to say that that his First Amendment rights were violated. So I just want to be very clear again. No, for the, I, for, I, I wasn't suggesting that. It was just the, it, it, it was more, I mean, no, I'm not suggesting that any constitutional rights were violated. Right. But, but the fact that in public discourse, you have students becoming lawyers. Yes. Yeah. 
heard the speech of Clarence Brandenburg that a professor read. Um, yeah. And it was like, oh, no, he's got to go. Yeah. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I, I, I view this as a teachable moment for many people who, who uh, may not, you know, may not be aware and may, and we can always reinforce the, the uh, idea that the first amendment only applies to state action. So if it had been yeah. UNC and he, and that professor was fired for his words, that could be a first amendment problem because well, that'd, be a, that, that'd be a nice lawsuit if it was UNC. Right. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. But always a teachable, always the, you know, trying to act on teachable moments, but you, you rightly hit on the ethos of free speech then in this private uh, situation. And I think what you're getting at is a larger conversation around what some people might call cancel culture. Uh, somebody says something that others disagree with, and suddenly there are calls for this person to be fired. Um, and, and that has become a hot topic of national debate and relevant to this conversation because it is often surrounding something that is viewed as hate speech. Um, so I, I, I do, I'm glad we're talking about a specific situation here because within this, these discussions around hate speech and cancel culture, as, as the term might be used, I prefer to talk about actual events rather than talk about people being canceled because we really, we really have to look at whether the response was proportionate to the convert, to the initial remark, things like, who were the, the people who were called? Who was the initial speaker? Who were the people that were calling for punishment against this initial speaker? Um, you know, what were the people calling for punishment seeking to continue a conversation or end it? And I always have trouble in, in situations where somebody is, is, is not intentionally trying to be hate, hateful or harmful. Maybe they made a bad decision, but certainly we're creating a political or educational atmosphere and discussion. And they've basically literally been shut down. This, this to me might be one of those situations where it violates the ethos of free speech. Could this professor have done better? Yes. Could there have been a better response than this professor needs to be fired or needs to resign? I think in, uh, you know, in terms of looking at what free speech values uh, or or spe free speech promotes, I think that's an overreaction. That's and and I understand that there is a need to protect, uh, you know, that that there is a a, a harm that that speech can inflict. Mm -hmm. I know this. I actually think, even as a free speech advocate, I think this is underappreciated, undervalued, not talking about talked about enough. That the, that words do inflict harm, real physical harm and but but i also think that we need to continue to have space for conversations that are uncomfortable mm -hmm. especially on college campuses and I, I guess i mean and, I, and like i say I'm, I'm i'm already on the record but I, I thought one of the aspects see because if you just limit it in that linear conversation i don't like brandenburg's words ever is wrong i think you also miss since you mentioned teachable moments you also miss the fact that one of the eight justices, because I think Abe Fortas had resigned, so one of the eight justices yeah. in the eight nothing ruling was Justice Thurgood Marshall. I'm sure he was familiar with Brandenburg's words, and the lead attorney for the ACLU was Eleanor Holmes Norton. I mean, yep. so I who represented Brandenburg. So I think she. So those are also also teachable moments. I think that get missed because of this linear. I don't like this word. This teacher has to go. 
And words, as we know, this is going back to the concerns around <coughs> punishment um, of, of the vague, vaguely defined hate speech, right? Um, you know, words can be interpreted in different ways. Words can have also can have very different impact in certain ways. And, um, you know, there, there, there is a certain impact to using actual words at, at different times, especially when you're teaching. It can have, I, I understand again, that the viewpoint of the students who felt that there was a harm being inflicted upon them. There's another side to this where you really get the impact of the case if the actual word is said. I saw this in the, in the Supreme Court arguments a few years ago around indecency in speech where there was a real tactical divide uh, amongst the lawyers arguing whether to use the actual four-letter words that would be banned from this radio program and were, were at issue and whether television and radio stations should have been punished by the Federal Communications Commission. Some wanted to use the actual word and some wanted to, in, in arguing the case, use F word. And, you know, there, there's an impact. There's that, 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 there's a difference. Now, help me with my history here. But I don't believe there was a major First Amendment speech case in the 19th century um, that tested our speech, and not even one that even challenged John Adams' Alien and Sedition Acts when they were signed in law. But as technology changes, along with the changing culture of the 20th century, we've had to grapple with the understanding of speech. And so I'm wondering, is the court placed in a situation where it because of our advances in speech, that the court in some ways is always playing catch up to its understanding of speech? Well, the, the, the first part of your question is 100% correct. The real, you know, the, the major, the first major First Amendment case from the Supreme Court is, I think it was around 1919. And, and it was, it's not so much that we've had many responses to technology. That case also, uh, what, what, as are many over time, especially in this area involving what might be called hate speech, was around communist literature being distributed during World War I. And well, we my next question is going to be about Schenck and Depp, so go right ahead. <laughs> there we go. I mean, we had Schenck, we had Abrams, we have these cases in, you know, 1919, 1925, Whitney versus California at the end of the 1920s, right? And we're they were all about, as were many of the cases through the 50s, about um, distribution of communist or anti-American literature in times of war. And then as you move past that, a lot of the cases moved into the civil rights movement as well. And, and were about people uh, arguing on one side or the other of the civil rights movement. And, and the, because they were, uh, in, in each instance, there was some kind of response that was expected or likely and sometimes even intended to a speaker, a public speaker, talking about these controversial topics on one side or the other. Well, I, I, that's a perfect segue for my next question, sir. Thank you so much. Uh, because you mentioned, you know, uh, U.S. versus Shank and U.S. versus Debs and you mentioned Whitney. And those cases, to me, look at speech and I sort of tie them to the larger move of the country, because we were also at war then. That was a conscript, conscription. 
Uh, the Espionage Act had been passed. And then when you look at Brandenburg, that came in the midst of a civil rights movement, a women's movement, Vietnam protests. So my, so how much is the mood of the country, how much does that influence how the court looks at these landmark cases, in this case, speech cases? Well, in fact, the court should the court is supposed to be the objective branch of government, the most objective branch of government, certainly the independent branch of government. And the court should not be influenced by these. In fact, the court should be reminded many of these instances that it's protecting the little guy, so to speak. And that that in a time of pro-American frenzy during war, there's still room for dissent. And in a time of Heated race relations. We need we need everybody to be heard. That in in the you know in the South in the 1960s we needed to protect the rights of speakers who were criticizing the government uh, for for continuing to try to hang on to Jim Crow laws. If there was no war, do you think do you think the court would have had a different position on Shank? I'm just curious. I do well. I, I mean, I, I think I think so. I think in what we do find is in times of war, everybody is willing to to concede some First Amendment rights, despite the the you know the words I believe they're attributed to Ben Franklin: "Those who you know would trade liberty for security deserve neither." Um, I, I I do think that the the conversation might have been different in Abrams if and and, and in Shank if. We weren't actively at war. I think the results might have been different. I don't think it should be that way. And I think that's what why we've seen, actually, that over time, the results in, in those cases are have were overturned eventually, you know, through a line of cases, eventually taking the clear and present danger and bad tendency test, which were the ones that were applied in, in these types of cases, whether there is a clear and present danger to, to America or whether speech had a bad tendency attached to it that might cause such clear and present danger. And eventually we're refashioned into the Brandenburg test, which is something very much more specific. There must be an incitement to imminent law and law, imminent lawless violence. So I, I certainly our understanding of press, one of the one of the First Amendment protections has changed uh, since the First Amendment was penned. Um, do we need to, in your view, uh, a different definition of press given the growth in the behemoth known as social media? Uh, should we treat it as press per our understanding of the First Amendment or should we look at it differently? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Functionally under the Constitution, even though we do have a press clause separate from speech, and of course the other free, three freedoms of assembly, petition, and religion. Uh, there, there's functionally under under the Constitution very few cases which where where the courts have differentiated between press and speech in any meaningful way. There's there 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 are arguments that may be too wonky and, and deep to go into here as as to whether there is a difference or is not. But, but ultimately there has not been. Where we see this play out are in areas where statutes, laws that are written try to, try to identify who is and who is not a journalist. And these do come up in areas 
involving, for instance, a reporter trying to protect a confidential source or, uh, you know, someone who might be prosecuted uh, eventually under the Espionage Act. We see these questions around whether Julian Assange is or is not a journalist. And I think it's a very dangerous game to play for the reasons you've outlined. There's there's an increasingly blurred line between journalists who write for newspapers, for instance, or, or broadcast on television or on radio, and someone who is at their computer writing blog posts or freelancing a lot of articles. Um, frankly, I don't think I don't think defining the the a journalist to me is is as valuable as defining journalism and looking at any. Uh, any individual action or controversy and saying, is this person engaged in journalism or not? Mm -hmm. Recently, New York Times uh, reported a rise in so-called, given our conversation, so-called hate speech since Elon Musk took over Twitter back in October. Um, it said that uh, before Musk took over, I think it was roughly 2,500 um, racial slurs, if you will, per day. Now it's up to nearly 4,000. Uh, beyond the fact that this actually goes beyond the parameters outlined in the Constitution and, and its free speech protections, is this development, in your view, significant? As, as a matter of law, as, as you say, it's, it's probably not significant because, it, you know, Twitter is a private business. They are able to set their own rules. They've clearly set them in a place that, that and, and we don't want the government intervening in that, but they've clearly set them in a place that allows more speech. Is it is it significant to me as a person? Yes, I, 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 I again, I can advocate for the protection of free speech without advocating for the cell, for the, and, and even the protection of hate speech as free speech without advocating for the celebration of hate speech. And so it's significant to me. It's also, I think, very instructive. There's, there are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, that would rather the, the, the hate mongers identify themselves. So I, you know, so that I can, I can, if I choose to repudiate them, so that I can certainly avoid them, so that we as a society can rightfully cancel them. As I said, I don't like discussions around cancel culture, but there are certain times I think that the response to people is shunning, is holding them accountable, using our own First Amendment rights. It seems to me one of the things that you're really touching on and um, is, is this whole notion that the, the natural impulse may be, may be for me to hear something and go, that's bad speech, and I don't want it in the public discourse. But when I do that, am I not, whether intentionally or not, taking on an arrogant position to, and actually, in effect, oversimplifying the larger problem that I know what's best for society? That's extremely accurate, Byron. I, I think that's a great way to put it, and I agree 100%. It's, it's the, the, nothing ever good comes from being ignorant. And I think the more we understand even things we disagree with, the, even things we, we abhor, the stronger we will become as a society. We've, we've really advanced despite in this, in this country. We, we have, it may not always seem like it in the moment. We've made a lot of advances in this country based on the right to free speech and allowing broad 
speech, a broad, strong right of free speech, and wide ranging com- and, and even uncomfortable conversations. Kevin Goldberg, sir, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me on the public rally. We much appreciated your insight and wise counsel. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was great to be here. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.